Our scripture today is John 18, 33 through 40. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Jesus answered, I'm sorry, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning, everyone. Great to be here with you again. It's been a few few uh, weeks, perhaps a couple of months since I was last here. I was driving frantically to get here on time. Um, before I, uh, while I was in college, I used to DJ, um, and I was at a college radio station as well as private parties, and there was a song that I used to play a lot that never got anyone dancing. It's a song called Video Killed a Radio Star. Does anyone know that song? Can you show by, uh, okay, Video Killed. If you don't know it, you should watch the video. It's actually a very, very good song, but it just kind of stuck with me because so video killed the radio star. So radio used to be kind of hip and big, but then somehow video came along the road and then radio became so not hip anymore. I guess what I was thinking was, okay, I have a friend who's a, a, a Anglican priest, Episcopal priest up in Kennebunkport, Maine. He has a parish of about 40 people and he never has to drive anywhere at like 10, 15 miles over the speed limit, weaving through the traffic to get to the next service. So all of that as a prefatory comment that I'm not going to be around after the service. In fact, as soon as I'm done preaching, I'm going to undo this microphone and get out of here and go down to a central location to preach. I know that there are several friends of my, my sons here and also um, good friends both from central and some new friends that I would love to meet. So perhaps there'll be another time when I don't have to preach after this one that I can hang out. So. Um, once again, uh, thank you for the welcome, and it's great to be here. If it is okay, let's uh, pray one more time as we listen to the Word of God. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you that you're ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ. He is truly our prophet, priest, and our king. Help us to ponder that reality deeply as your spirit searches our hearts. Whether we are seven years old or 70 years old, help us to confess with our tongue that Christ, you are truly our king. Thank you in Christ's name, amen. All right, so let's do a quick uh, word picture association game as we start our sermon together. Uh, this is primarily for the benefit of those around my son's age, 13 and younger, uh, but maybe others can enjoy as well. Think of the word king, who or what comes to your mind? When I ask the same question to a group of people, 
a few years younger than this particular group, they came up with pictures like that one. No, not that one. Elvis Presley. Let's go to Elvis. Okay, so they thought of the word uh, Elvis Presley as a king of rock. See that guy right there? And another word, another person said, well, king as in King Kong. So King Kong as a, there is that. And then king as in King James of Scotland and England. Some of you uh, may resonate with that particular picture. Um, he was a king as a Charles, uh, um, James Stewart, who became the father of Charles Stewart. Uh, he's best known for the King James Version of the Bible. But the picture that you saw earlier is another King James, and that's perhaps better known for many of the young people as King LeBron James. And while we dwell in the realm of sports, there's another king, his name is King Felix. He's perhaps best known for the people from the Pacific Northwest, Felix Hernandez of the Seattle Mariners. Now you may not say, what? He's a king I didn't know. Yeah, well, he hasn't done very well in the last couple of seasons, but he has not abdicated his throne yet, as far as I know. Today's king that we're going to be talking about is Jesus Christ, the king. So this is a, a particular question for those who say that they are Christians. Is Christ your king? If so, in what ways is he your king? For those of you who are seeking the truth or seeking Christianity, that's not really an apropos question, at least not yet, although we will raise this question about all of us. Who is king of your life? And that, I think, is a very crucial question for all of us to think through. So today's text that was just read introduces us to a courtroom scene, a Roman outpost of the imperial court system administered by Pontius Pilate, perhaps the most famous or infamous court scene that uh, we, will, uh, we have read about. And he is also, Pontius Pilate is one of the most infamous Roman governor that makes appearance in the stories of the New Testament. So this courtroom scene is, as I said, arguably the, the most important courtroom scene in the history of jurisprudence. Bettering the courtroom scene of O.J. Simpson, Richard Nixon and the grand jury after the Watergate affair, the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the leading Nazi war criminal who was tried in Israel in May 1960. The irony of this significance is that if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, indeed truly divine and truly human, then to have God stand trial, sentenced to death, and executed as a state criminal stretches us beyond the realm of credulity. More on that in just a few minutes. So let's actually do a quick rundown of this chapter, uh, chapter 18, and offer a brief analysis of what's there. So obviously, Jesus is standing in front of Pontius Pilate. That means one of the preceding events was his arrest. And then uh, the writer interweaves the story of Peter's denial of Jesus three times. And then Jesus is brought firstly to Caiaphas, who was the chief priest, high priest for that year. And then Jesus is sent to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. This was Passover time which means it's an extremely busy time in the liturgical calendar for century Jews. Perhaps for Christians, it'll be equivalent to Christmas. Needless to say, Jesus was a Jew, and the fact that his death was about to occur right before Passover would have tremendous significance for the followers of Jesus in their interpretation of the identity of their Lord, Rabbi, and even Savior. 
The leaders of Israel took some of them, took Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's mansion. The writer in verse 28 mentions that the desire for ritual purity prevented the Jews from entering the palace because it was a pagan palace, thereby heightening the oddity, I would say, and peculiarity of Jewish customs, most of which were plainly strange to Pontius Pilate. He did not understand their culture. He did not like living there. And certainly he was perplexed about this whole exchange, the strange and perhaps the most significant event in his political career, perhaps even of his entire life. Pilate says in verse 31, after they brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate, he says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. You see what's going on? The Jewish leaders brought him to the Roman governor in order to have him tried and receive kind of sentencing according to Roman law. And the Roman governor is punting it right across the Jewish way and says, wait, wait, no, no, no. I don't want to deal with your stuff. I don't really understand how this thing works. And so you do it your way. And then the repulse from the Jewish leaders was this that we have no right of execution, but you do. Then, right there, John the Evangelist offers this parenthetical commentary. He writes, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Do you know why John says that here? I think for the readers of the text, in case they're about to freak out when they have come to this point, because remember this was written in the, toward the end of the first century, and many of the readers, they had become Christians, but they had never really seen Jesus. So the story of Jesus' life and ministry is kind of fresh to them. So there is a sense in which they're kind of anticipating what is yet to come in ways that we have become so familiarized with the gospel story. And so they're about to see, wait a minute, he's about to get executed or something like that. So they might say, what the whatever, why is this happening to us? John is saying, hey, 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 it might look like God has left the throne here and that things are completely and chaotically out of control, but actually that's not true. This happened to fulfill what Jesus said, had said already. So there is a pattern in the unfolding story of Jesus' life and ministry that John, as a firsthand witness of the ministry of Jesus, is wanting to fill in and clue in on the readers for their own benefit and for their own edification. I think Pilate becomes both confused, irritated, and even gripped with fear. Some of you might remember that there's a, there are parallel accounts in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. And in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, do you know that story that Pilate's wife had a dream? Well, what kind of dream was that? Did she have a good dream or nightmare? Or She had a bad dream. She had a bad dream and said, you know what? Don't trouble this man today. So she warned her husband to not mess with this guy. So he is now kind of really confused. True to his nightmare, his wife's nightmare, the man was brought forth. So he asked. So that's the context of our text today. He asked Jesus this question. Are you the king of the Jews? So based upon that question and the exchange between Pontius Pilate and Jesus Christ, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who is now trying Jesus and is about to sentence Jesus, and Jesus who's standing trial, in that sort of exchange, we want to ponder three points this morning. One, the nature of the kingdom. Two, identity of the king. Third, the irony of the king's subjects. So nature, identity, and irony. 
And the daunting task that I have in front of me today is to tie that to the themes of the Reformation. We've looked at threefold office of Christ in the past two Sundays. We have looked at Jesus as the prophet, and we have looked at Jesus as the priest. And today we'll finish with this idea of Jesus as the king. All three of these offices, whether you're a priest or prophet or king, they have Old Testament precedents in the life and ministry of Israel. Because all these three offices um, were anointed. You're anointed with oil that signified that you are set aside for divine purposes within the various economies of Israel as the apple of God's eyes, as it were. But here's another thing. Most people were not priest, prophet, and king all at the same time. In fact, it was often seen as a sort of an act of hubris if you as a king try to act as a priest because that's one of the reasons why one of the kings was actually uh, uh, punished by God with this kind of leprosy and so on and so forth. So what is really intriguing about Jesus' identity is that Jesus is both prophet, priest, and king, all encompassed in one person of Christ. But let's think about this whole irony right now. Jesus is asked, are you a king of the Jews? Think about the political condition of the people of Israel in the times of Jesus. If you don't know that concept, perhaps you might want to see Life of Brian, this Monty Python sketch, because uh, there you can see very, very clearly that the people of Israel did not have power of their own. They belong ultimately to God, but just momentarily and earthly-wise, they belong to the people of Roman Empire. So the whole idea of kingdom was an elusive, if not illusory, concept. They hadn't had a king for quite some time. On the contrary, Babylonian captivity and exile and Roman foreign occupation hardly qualified for the presence of God's kingdom at all. They were most definitely and ardently longing for the kingdom to reappear, however, so much so that texts such as the book of Daniel, which we'll look at in just a little bit, was written in order to offer God-ordained cheer and encouragement for a group of exiles living as refugees, reminding them the kingdom of God of Israel was not dead. In this prophetic discourse, the kingdom was yet to come. This kingdom was to be bigger than Babylon, or as my son would say, badder than Nebuchadnezzar, but not yet visible. Therefore, the nature of this kingdom had two aspects which is seriously consider, and this is inseparably linked to the kingdom of Jesus, who was standing trial as a potential criminal. And I want you to really ponder that reality. Jesus stood as a potential criminal who became an actual criminal receiving this state execution sentence by way of crucifixion, and more on that in just a few moments. Let's think about the nature of this kingdom, and we can look, look at it in two ways. One is invisibility. The other is invincibility. Invisibility. Let's think about that. Verse 36. Jesus is asked this question, are you the king of the Jews? And then he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. In fact, just minutes ago, you know, when Jesus is now being arrested, Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's chief servant, and then 
Jesus rebukes Peter and says, do not do such a thing, and heals Marcus's ear, puts it back into place, and so on and so forth. So we have seen already that there's a little bit of confusion between the messianic expectation of the most ardent followers of Jesus, namely the 12, because they, even after the resurrection, would ask this question, Lord, are you at this time, what, going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So it is completely understandable and indeed justifiable for the people of Israel to see the messianic rule in that kingly and earthly fashion. We need to understand that that was what the text kind of said. I mean, and they were, they had prophets and they had kings, and so they were waiting for the Messiah to show up. And here is this alleged messianic figure whose ministry, whose kind of campaign, as it were, is now coming to a crash. I mean, you know, you're supposed to be leading a group of people, disgruntled people of Israel, and disillusioned people of Israel to this messianic rule. But what happens to you? You get ended up, you end up by getting mistreated by your own people, and then you are now handed over to Roman governor, and soon, very soon, you're going to die on a cross. The invisibility of the kingdom of God. This was a key insight that helped many Protestants, actually, to get a better bearing about the kingdom of God and Christ as their king. The Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, was a refugee movement. That's right, a refugee movement. When you think of refugee, do you think of Jesus as a refugee? Because guess what? He was. Did you know that? Shortly after his birth, he and his parents had to leave. Not had to leave, they had to escape because King Herod was going to kill him. So... They had to live in Egypt for a little while before they could safely return. So Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, experienced what it means to be a refugee. And in the Protestant tradition, in the very beginning years and decades of this Protestant Reformation, they had to escape because of your religious convictions and commitments. You could not live in Italy. If you're Catholic, you had to go find somewhere, for example, in Zurich, Switzerland, or, you know, um, um, Amden in, 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 in the Netherlands, or let's say in England, and so on and so forth. So you were actually moving. So this whole Protestant Reformation was a refugee movement. We probably did not know that, and even if you were to hear that, we don't dwell on it. And here's why I think it is important. If you're a Catholic then in the 16th century, or even now, you can think of the Vatican, right? Some of you have been to you know, St. Peter's Basilica or that kind of square right there in the Vatican. We think of the Vatican as the earthly manifestation of the reign of Christ's kingdom. But for many Protestants... They had to focus on the invisibility of the kingdom as a rallying point of this new religious, political, and cultural movement because they did not have a particular city they can point to or some kind of fortress or some kind of palace and say, there, there is where Jesus is. For many of them, the error of making a one-to-one -one correspondence between the power of earthly kingdom and the kingdom of God was what gave them the problem with the purity and the unity of the church in the first place. That is why in our nation, we always struggle over, but there is a clear articulation of the separation between church and state. That the state isn't meant to interfere with the affairs of the church, and the opposite, that the church is also not to be interfering and meddling with how to, how to let the state be state. And I think, if I may say so, the error of believing that by electing the right person into the White House, that the kingdom of God will come 
has been one of those kind of captivity among many American evangelicals in kind of equating this kingdom of God and forgetting the invisibility of the kingdom of God. John Calvin, a refugee pastor from France who reluctantly settled in Geneva, Switzerland, never had the opportunity to return to his homeland. He wrote um, in perhaps one of the most uh, beloved um, classics of Christianity in the early modern period, uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, in book two, chapter 15, section four, had these words about the identity of Christ's kingdom. Listen to this. He said, we have said that we can perceive the force and usefulness of Christ's kingship only when we recognize it to be spiritual and not physical. For this reason, we ought to know that the happiness promised us in Jesus Christ does not consist in outward advantages. He says outward advantages are incidental and not essential to your following Jesus as your king. In other words, what Jesus is promising is not earthly pomp and power and prestige. What Jesus is promising through and through is, I will be with you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. I was officiating a wedding on Friday here in town, and every time I officiate a wedding, it is a poignant reminder of this human effort to make covenant before God and before one another, right? And I've done weddings in the last 25 years or so to have experienced that some weddings go on into wonderful joy and mirth and children and so on and so forth, and other marriages do not end up in that way, right? That's what it means to be human in some ways. But at the same time, I think God is making this promise through Jesus Christ, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And the, the testament that God makes, the covenant that God makes through Jesus' death and resurrection is God's solemnity and seriousness with which he enters into this marriage contract and covenant with us. And what does Jesus promise? If you're interested in following Jesus, Jesus is saying, I'm not gonna, he's not saying you'll become rich and powerful and famous if you follow me. Jesus says, you know what? What I will give you is me. I will give you me. You know, I've been married 21 years, and every, every time I think about my, my much better half, Mickey, I'm humbled and I'm so excited. I say to her sometimes, you know, what did you ever see in me? I mean, if you see her, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, what did you ever see? I, I married up big time, right? And every time I think about the fact, you know, you... I didn't have anything. I was a poor seminary student. I didn't know what I was going to do. I wanted to be a missionary in India, and the Lord closed his door and then led me to another mission field called Vanderbilt University. And sometimes I don't know which is better, which is worse, but God is still here with us all the same, right? So, you know, when my wife said yes to me, she says, all I could say was, I can give you me. And for some people, that's not enough. Like, what are you, are you just going to give you I'm not going to take that. Yet for the followers of Jesus, it is really important for us to think about, is Jesus enough? Is the presence of Jesus enough? Is the kingly promise of Jesus that we'll look at later on, is that enough for us? So the kingdom of Christ is invisible, not of this visible world. It is not Rome. It is not Canterbury. It is not Constantinople for the Orthodox Christians. It is not Wittenberg for the Lutheran Christians. It is not even Geneva for the Presbyterians like many of us here. Christ's kingdom is invisible, but also truly global and indeed cosmic. That's connected to the other point about the nature of the kingdom, its invincibility. The kingdom of God is not only invisible, but also it is invincible. 
When you think of the word invincible, you think of some warrior or somebody powerful, somebody with muscular physique, or someone who's not, who's going to be indomitable and cannot be dominated, cannot be defeated. And that's exactly the term. Think about, and well, if you have your Bibles or your phones or, or actual Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 2, because this is a very powerful dream that Daniel uh, Nebuchadnezzar has, and then that really perplexed him, so much so that he promised uh, you know, he called for interpreters to come, and Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and he was deeply troubled. And he says, okay, if you actually get this dream wrong, if you try to interpret it, and you, you're wrong in your interpretation, you're going to be zapped. So there weren't going to be many volunteers, right? Because if you, it's one thing to take a test, but it's one thing to get the answer wrong, and your earthly presence is just exterminated. So, right? And then, but they were saying, well, wait a minute, we know one guy, he's one of those Jewish exiles named Daniel. He seems to be a pretty clever chap. Maybe he can help us. So Daniel comes, and he, his prefatory comment is powerful and poignant. He says, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar, you may be all that, but I'm telling you that there's somebody else, some other king that is bigger and greater, and he is the, the Lord of all truth and wisdom, and he will give me the interpretation so that we can tell you what the dream was about. You know what the dream was? Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this huge stature, huge stature, and uh, this, this whole kind of statue was, uh, the head was of gold, think of it, big statue, head was gold, chest and arms was silver, belly and thighs was bronze, legs was of iron, feet was partly of iron and clay, and then what? As the statue is standing very formidably, out of nowhere comes this rock, demolishes the statue, and the statue is completely blown into smithereens and raised to the ground, and there is that kind of serene quietness. And that's when the king woke up and said, whoa, what kind of dream was that? Daniel says, you know what? Let me tell you something. You are this mighty king, but after you will come another empire that will be mightier. And thereafter you will come another empire that will be mightier yet. And after that empire will come another empire that will be mightier yet still. And that after all of that, there will come the empire of God that will wipe away all of these things. And you know what? Scholars upon scholars have been trying to figure out what these empires were. Some have said, okay, it's the Babylonian, it's the Assyrian, it's the Roman, it's the Soviet Union, it's the United States of America. And many scholars have tried to figure out, but in the end, in the end, all have, I think, kind of failed. One thing that is clear, though, is that this is about the messianic kingdom of God in this Messiah. Whoever that Messiah is, has been the main brunt of division, interpreted division, between Jews and Christians. Who the Messiah was and what the kingdom of God would actually entail. But all agree that this messianic kingdom is going to be so formidable, so powerful, that transcends all the earthly kingdoms, thus the invincibility of the nature of the kingdom of God. That leads me to my second point, and that is the identity of the king which we have already alluded to, but let me specify here. In verse 37, Pilate says, so you are a king then. Jesus says, you know, my kingdom is not of this world, but if, I, if it was, then my followers would fight to prevent his arrest, so my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate's like, okay, what are you saying? You are a king, right? And then Jesus' response, let's read here. Jesus' response is this. You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason why I was brought into this world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Friends, let's think about this. Let's think about where Jesus is as Jesus is talking to Pontius Pilate. Where is he? 
He's in a courtroom. What's going on here? Who's getting tried? Jesus is. But do you realize, I mean, don't you see the irony, the subversive irony of what Jesus is saying? He says, I came into this world to testify to the truth. In fact, everyone on the side of the truth will listen to me. What is he saying implicitly to Pontius Pilate? You may be thinking that you're trying me. No, 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 no. I'm actually trying you. You think you are in charge, but uh, you're not getting the whole picture here, my friend. Because if you're on my side, then you'll belong to the truth party, then you will know who you really are, and that truth will set you free. The identity of this king is that he is the king of truth, who defines truth, who judges truth and falsehood, whose life testifies to the truth. You know, I was never really into TV dramas much at all, um, but Amazon Prime quickly solved their problem. We got rid of Netflix because we weren't watching drama, but I don't know what happened the last couple of years. I, I, last six months or so, I began watching a lot of these reruns, you know, Veep or Silicon Valley. And my, re my recent favorite is this thing called The, the Good Wife. It's about, right? And, and the courtroom dramas are really fascinating to me. Because, I mean, I, I know there are at least two lawyers in the mix. I mean, there, and then there's some other lawyers here perhaps as well. But every time I watch these courtroom dramas, I am often kind of brought to this point of like, what is truth? Like, what is, and there are so client attorney privileges and what that shades and shields truth and so on and so forth. But Jesus comes and says, I am the truth. And Pilate asks this question, what is truth? And so this whole thing of truth is going to be very, very important as a part, an inseparable part of the identity of this king, king of truth. The irony here is that the one who is tried and judged, soon to be executed, is the one who was also the judge of Pilate's heart. Another aspect of the identity of this king is that here is a king whose identity will be revealed most definitely through the gruesome death on a cross, whose crowning achievement was death by Roman imperial execution. You know what, friends? Let me just say something that would be kind of offensive. I guess there is no, there's no crucifix in this sanctuary. There is one? All right, okay. How could I miss that, right? So I'm always looking down. So look up and see the crucifix. Imagine we were to travel in a time capsule 2,000 years forward and we'll see a big electric chair hanging like that. Are you with me? Because first century, if we were to go back to first century and ha had this hanging in some kind of sacred space, you know what they will think? They'll think we're absolutely nutters. They'll think we're absolutely crazy. Because why would you have this symbol of deep shame and rejection by society and death by state execution to be hanging in some, some kind of sacred space. You get what I'm saying? We have sanitized it. We have made this sacred object and inadvertently we have kind of sanitized it. You see, let us never forget, friends, that Jesus died as a state criminal. He was. Now, was he in fact a state criminal? No, the answer is obviously no. But then that shows the extent to which Jesus would identify with our lostness, collectively speaking, as humanity. He identified with the lostness, damnation, and death of humanity to this extent, drinking down to the dregs of the cup of God's wrath so that he can definitely demonstrate the solidarity with the most despicable and lost among us all. You know, one of my, most, uh, one of my favorite um, lines in Contemporary praise music is, it goes like this. Oh, Christ, my king of sympathy, whose wounds secure my peace. Your grace extends to call me friend. Your mercy sets me free. 
I don't know who wrote these words. Maybe they live in Nashville. I don't know. But, oh, Christ, my king of sympathy. I don't know about you, but, and I'm not that emotional, but like every time I read those words and sing those words, it just brings me to tears. Christ is my king of sympathy. I know our life is all messed with different dramas and so on, but Christ is your king and my king of sympathy. He knows who we are. He knows where we have been. He knows exactly the deepest recesses of our hearts, the dark corners and the invisible parts of our life journey to come. Christ is the king of, true king of sympathy. See, this late Chuck Colson, who was actually implicated in this Watergate scandal, who served his time and became a Christian while incarcerated and started this thing called the Prison Fellowship, told a story about prison reform in Mexico. There was this kind of, apparently, this famous prison, and, and the warden of this prison brought a number of visitors, and he said, okay, let me explain to you why our prison has been able to kind of go through this reform. And they, he brought them to this one corner cell, a cell of solitary confinement. And the warden of the prison said, here is cell for Jesus, who is doing time for all of us. Here's a solitary cell for Jesus, who is doing time for all of us. Every other year at Vanderbilt, I teach a, Riverbend Maxim, a course at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. And I teach courses like prison writings and also um, evil in Christian tradition, the problem of suffering and evil. And there's something about teaching a course like, you know, problem of evil and suffering inside of prison cells, right? With 10 or 15 brothers and 10 or 15 Vanderbilt students there. And these are, you know, uh, brothers who have received maximum, you know, they have received their maximum uh, sentencing. And um, every time we talk about the death of Jesus Christ, one brother says something to me that I'll never forget. He's in there because of, yeah, the worst thing one can do to another human being, right? And he's in there and he says, Paul, you know, I, I, every time we talk about Jesus' death and resurrection, I cannot believe it because he became a state-executed criminal. And he says something. He says, you know what? Couldn't God simply have forgiven us by letting Jesus die of natural death, old age? Ever thought about that? If death was what was required, couldn't Jesus die at age 78? You know, he had a little bit of Alzheimer's and then he dies of old age. Why not? Oh, why couldn't Jesus die get hit by a donkey and die in a donkey accident. This brother of mine at Riverbend was raising the same question as this 4th century Egyptian Christian named Athanasius on the incarnation was raising, actually. This 4th century Christian named Athanasius became the defender of the Trinity, asked this question on the incarnation, why didn't Jesus die of old days? Why didn't Jesus die in an accidental death? Because that would actually not illustrate most powerfully and poignantly the fact that God would become identified with the, the worst among us, that he would die this executionary death to identify. So this king, Christ your king, is a king of sympathy because he identified with the absolute worst of us. And the problem is, the problem is many of us actually believe that we're better than those in Riverbend. And that thinking that we're better actually deprives you of this wonderful benefit of desiring to identify with Christ who has so identified with the worst of us. We never really think, I never really think that I'm the worst of the lot. And that may be, 
ironically, what is eluding our deep appreciation for and desire for union with this Jesus, King of Sympathy. Another aspect of Christ's identity is that he is truly King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Revelation chapter 19, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on, and on his head are many crowns. His, he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, the writer of the book of Revelation, John the Evangelist, has his vision. Now, has the kingdom been restored to Israel yet? No. They're still, in, they're still under foreign occupation. Now, where is John? Apparently, he's in Patmos on exile. So not only is this country in the doldrums and down in the dumps, he himself is, humanly speaking, suffering imprisonment away from human fellowship. And there he has a vision of Christ the King. That Christ is not only the Christ King of sympathy, but he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we need to remember that. We need to remember the crucifixion of Jesus, but also the resurrection and the current reign of Jesus Christ. How does Jesus reign in this world? Many Protestant reformers, many Catholic Christians have said Jesus reigns through the hearts, desires, and actions of the followers of Jesus who concentrate and congregate themselves in and through the church. So it is the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, it is the Christian followers who comprise the church that in our hearts Christ reigns. So last October I had the privilege of delivering a couple of talks in Istanbul, Turkey on the Trinity and a chance to visit, um, never mind, then, uh, a very famous, world-famous Hagia Sophia. There is a kind of mosaic of Christ as Pantocrator, which means the Lord of all things, or Christ the omnipotent ruler. And it's, you probably, if you Google that phrase, you will see this kind of blue mosaic, which is really beautiful, serene, kind of, it's about the size of, twice the size of this screen, maybe, this whole thing. And it is, um, Hagia Sophia is now currently an Islamic mosque, but they have preserved some of these Christian arts. And this is one of the, the most famous kind of mosaic of Jesus as the ruler of all things. Jesus indeed is the ruler of all things through our hearts, through our church. That leads me to my final point, and that is the irony of the king's subjects. After uttering what is truth, Pilate goes out and says, I find no basis for a charge against him. I want to release him. And he asked the people who brought him in the first place, what about you? Right? Do you remember that? I mean, we, we read this earlier. And their response is, no, not him. Release Barabbas instead. Now, let me ask you, why did they miss him? Why did they so patently miss Jesus who was right in front of them? Right? And Pilate goes back and says, you know what? I think this guy is innocent. I want to release him. What about you? And he's like, no, 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 no. Please keep him and execute him. But we want some, somebody else named Barabbas released in his stead. Now, the question for me and for you, for all of us, is what would you have done? If you were in that throng, would you have said, yeah, release Jesus. He's the king of the Jews and my king. Or would you have said, yeah, release Barabbas? Soren Kierkegaard, this Danish philosopher, existentialist philosopher, Christian, said that if he had been there, he would have just silently walked away, finding himself complicit in the accusation of Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. He would not have done any better. 
And I must side with Kierkegaard there. I would not have done much better at all. And my guess is that many, if not most of us, would find ourselves in the same lot of silently feeling bad, perhaps, but walking away because we're afraid of the, the, the mob. See, this theological truth must lead to the, why did they miss Jesus? The irony of the king's subjects. He, John, answers it in the prologue. In John chapter 1, verse 11, he says that Jesus came, became incarnate, and came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Something went missing so that Jesus' own people missed Jesus when he came. And the Gentiles who were not seeking Jesus became the unplanned beneficiaries of this mighty providential act of God. I want to quote something else from Calvin, and we'll have another quote from somebody else, and we'll finish. On the same vein of talking about how Christ rules as our king, Calvin in his Institutes writes this, For this reason, we ought to know that leading a joyous and peaceful life, having rich possessions, being safe from all hard and abounding with delight, such as the flesh commonly longs after, is not what Jesus promises. Therefore, it is that we may patiently pass through this life with his misery, hunger, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles, content with with this one thing, that Christ our King will never leave us destitute, but will provide for our needs until our warfare ended, we're called to triumph. Such is the nature of his rule that he shares with us all that he has received from the Father. You see, dearly beloved, Christ says, I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in fact, I'm not some kind of parsimonious or stingy God. I actually share with you all that I receive from my Father. So all I have is yours, and I am actually in that wonderful union with you. So that calls us, for those who identify with Christ, to dare it all for the Lord. I want to quote from this uh, contemporary philosopher, a group of, um, actually one of the three actually became a pastor, a contemporary philosophy group called Run DMC. If you're like my age or maybe even younger, Run DMC was the way that I learned to, I don't know, a lot of things about life. They had a song called Down With The King. Does anyone know the song Down With The King? All right, if you don't know it, you can listen to it. Down with the king. There's a real powerful line there. Listen to this. Because of all the things that I bring with me, only G-O-D could be a king to me. And if the G-O-D be in me, then the king I will be. The microphone is granted when it's handed to me. Only G-O-D could be a king to me. Only G-O-D could be a king to me, nothing else, nobody else. And if that G-O-D is in me, then I'll be a king. I'll be a king who dares to sympathize with those around me. I'll be a king who dares to release all that I have, not as my own prerogative, but as a, as a gift for, for all to be shared, giving of myself. When you look at the history of Christianity, some of the people who really did some laudable things, they did so in the name of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, recognizing that all that they have and all that they are is a gift from God and that God will continue to identify with and sojourn with them so that this earthly troubles and travails will not be the final say in our life's journey. And these are, at least for me, and I hope it is, truly convicting me even as I say these words. Have I not become so comforted by the earthly things that I don't really realize the costliness of my discipleship as I follow this king of this great sympathy the king who is invisible yet invincible, 
The one who says, I am with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray.